Hello, fellow teachers, and welcome to Teaching with Power. This is Ben Wilcox, and I'm so glad that you've decided to join me this week for a study of Doctrine and Covenants, sections 129 to 132. And what a week it is, my friends, because we have some really remarkable, thought-provoking, and even challenging things to take a look at this week. I can't think of a block of scripture that we've studied so far this year that has more new, diverse, and mind-expanding material packed into one location than this week. So buckle up, grab your scriptures and your marking pencils, because it's going to be a fun ride. And for an icebreaker, I actually like to key off that idea of going on a fun ride. So I asked my class, what's your favorite amusement park ride of all time? And that question usually sparks some really fun discussion, especially if you're teaching a group of youth. For me, I love Thunder Mountain at Disneyland, and that's got to be my favorite ride of all time. It makes me smile every time I get a chance to ride it. Well, the first three shorter sections of this week's study, 129 to 131, kind of remind me of an amusement park, a doctrinal amusement park, because there's so many different rides that we can go on here. Each one is unique and thrilling in its own way. And what do you do when you go to an amusement park? You run from ride to ride, anticipating another delight. And the rides are usually short, but exciting. And then you move on to the next one and the next. Well, that's kind of like these sections here. There isn't much that really unifies these different ideas together. They're kind of a a collection of doctrinal odds and ends. And that's actually the historical background to these sections. These were truths that were garnered and selected from the notes of William Clayton, one of the prophet's secretaries, as Joseph taught on a number of different occasions. So as a teacher, you probably won't have enough time to cover every single portion and topic in these sections in detail. You're going to have to pick and choose. But rather than taking that decision into your own hands, maybe you could leave it up to your class. Tell them that they're going to decide which rides you, as a class, are going to go on that day. And then you display a list of their options and give them a chance to vote. They each get to vote for the three rides that they are most excited to try out. You could even give them this little handout that allows them to mark their three preferred rides. And then you could just have them raise their hands and count the number of votes that you get for each. The ride you go on first will be the one that received the most votes. And then you do the one that received the second most votes, so on. And then you just do as many rides as you can until the park closes or time runs out. And each ride consists of a mini lesson that you teach to your students. Keep in mind that some of the rides are longer than others and some are shorter. But as a teacher, that means that you need to be prepared to teach all of the topics, even if you don't end up covering them. Or another option, you could hand out the voting card before you teach the lesson, the day before, the week before, and then gather up their votes. And then on the day of the lesson, just teach the ones that got the most. But to help you to be prepared for whichever you do, let's take a look at each one together. So our first ride here, the handshake test. This is a really interesting section, section 129. 
there's a very disconcerting scripture that we find in the New Testament. It's 2 Corinthians 11.14. And it says that Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. That means that Satan himself could try to deceive somebody by appearing to them as an angel. That's kind of a scary thought. Here comes section 129 to the rescue, though. It helps us to know what we should do if we're ever visited by an angel and we want to make sure that it's really an angel from God. Definitely don't want to be deceived in that instance, right? So how do we know? Go ahead and read section 129 to find out. What is it? You do the handshake test. (laughs) You reach out and offer to shake their hand. And one of three things might happen. One, the messenger will reach out and shake your hand and you'll feel it. And that means you're conversing with a resurrected personage and you can listen to their message. Or two, the messenger won't move. They'll just stand there, kind of an awkward standoff maybe. And in that case, you can also trust their message because you're conversing with the spirit of a just man made perfect. They just can't shake your hand because they have yet to be resurrected and they don't want to try to deceive you. Or the scary one, the messenger will reach out their hand to shake yours and you won't feel anything. Your hand will just pass through as if they're a ghost. And in that case, which I think would be quite terrifying. Don't listen to their message. And maybe you should turn around and run in that case. Now, I don't know about you, but I remember being a little shocked by this section when I first heard it in seminary and thinking, oh my gosh, man, is this going to happen to me? Does this really happen to people? Are angels visiting all the time? And and do I need to take notes? Could I Should I keep a little card with the instructions in my back pocket just in case? And I guess I've got to make a confession here. I've never seen an angel to this day. Maybe there's some of you out there that this happens all the time to, but not me. So does does section 129 have any value for us non-angel seeing people? And I think it does. Look at this in a more general sense. We have messengers all around us. They may just not be angels. Sometimes it can be hard to detect that which is true and inspired, especially because Satan is always out there trying to deceive us. Now, some things out there are obviously bad, and the Holy Ghost can help us to see what's right and wrong. But it's not always that easy, especially in a world where the adversary is really good at making evil look good and good evil. As we encounter different ideas and opinions and beliefs in our education, in politics, in science, in religion, in literature, and from other people that we associate with, it may not always be clear what's true and from God and what's false. So what do we do? Do we just avoid anything from the world around us that isn't directly produced by the church or found in Scripture? Do we need to be afraid of the people and the world around us? No, no. We can shake hands with it. We're still keeping our distance. But we reach out and give it the handshake test. 
I can reach out my hand to Buddhism and Islam and Protestantism. I can reach out my hand to Shakespeare and Aristotle and C.S. Lewis and Faulkner. I can reach out my hand to Einstein and Newton and even Darwin. I believe that enriching and powerful and true things can be found in all of these sources. God has spoken and inspired many of his children across cultures and religions and disciplines. However, keep in mind that there is also a lot out there that is not inspired or are interpolations from the hands of men. There may even be things that might look good on the outside or sound appealing at first, but are false and maybe even dangerous. Satan can appear as an angel of light. So how do we know? Well, one, we will either feel something or we won't. If it's true, there will be glory associated with it. If it's not, we're not going to feel anything. And therefore, we can detect it. I know that I've had that experience. For example, when I read Buddhist scripture or Shakespeare or, or hear scientific research or sometimes even watching a movie, there are times when I've felt the truth in those things. On the other hand, there's times when you can just feel that something's not right. There are things in Buddhism and Shakespeare and science and movies that are not messages from God, that are not truth, that that we need to reject. The Holy Ghost can speak to our minds and hearts and help us to know the difference. That's not the only help we get. Look at verse 7. We know that it is contrary to the order of heaven for a just man to deceive. How can that help us? God has sent us the guidance of just men that we can rely on to tell us the truth. Men of God don't deceive us. The most just men that I can think of are the prophets and apostles. We can rely on their words and the words that past prophets have given us through Scripture. If what we encounter in philosophy, in other religions, in books, in politics, in science, if those things don't jibe, with revealed truth and doctrine. We can know for a surety that it's not inspired and we can reject it. God's given us a lot of help in detecting the truth, the the things that are truly from him. We've got the handshake test to help us out. All right, next ride from uh, section 130 verses one through three, heaven and earth. According to these verses, we learn some wonderful things about heaven. What are they? Go ahead and read them to yourself. What do we learn? In heaven, we get to see the Father and the Son in person, in the flesh, and see that they're like us and we like them in some sense. This is a personal appearance. Not just an in-your-heart kind of thing. Think of the experience the Nephites had at Bountiful when the Savior appeared to them. Each of them got personal time with the Savior one by one. We're going to get to have that. What a a great thing to anticipate. Also from these verses, we learn that the same sociality which exists among us here on earth will exist among us there. Only it will be coupled with eternal glory. 
What does sociality mean? You can even use the footnote for help here. Relationships. The kinds of relationships that we have here will be there too. So marriage, family, friendships. We're going to get to have those things there. We'll enjoy those relationships in exaltation. Except they're going to be infinitely better because they'll be coupled with eternal glory. As perfected and glorified and resurrected beings, how much greater are those relationships going to be? They become celestial marriages and will have celestial families and celestial friendships. Heaven? It's going to be worth it. Next, God's wristwatch. So is the way God tells time different from the way we tell time? That's the question that's posed in verse 4. The answer? Yes, it is different. The reckoning of time differs based on who and where you are in the universe. We don't experience time in the same way that God does. So time is not a constant. It's relative. Interesting fact, modern science has come to the same conclusion. Maybe you've heard of Einstein and the theory of relativity. He proposed that depending on how fast you travel in the universe, the way you experience time changes. It's relative. And how cool is it that Joseph is making this similar kind of statement all the way back in 1843? Now, honestly, understanding how God tells time is not really super essential for our salvation. It's interesting, but it's not vital. So if this discussion confuses you, just let it go. Uh, But if you want to dive just a little deeper into the topic, there are a few places in Scripture that do deal with it. The most famous verse about time in the Scriptures is probably 2 Peter 3, verse 8. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So one way of interpreting that, and how it's usually interpreted, is to take it 100% literally that a thousand years for man is one day for God. Still, there is another possible interpretation. This may just be Peter's way of saying that God's time is different than man's time. It doesn't say that it was a thousand years, but as a thousand years. Like he's just picking a large number to make a point. Personally, I think that God doesn't even really measure things in terms of time, but in terms of eternity. If you really stop to think about it, if you're eternal, then measuring past, present, and future just doesn't make as much sense. You just are. You exist. And there are a number of other scriptures on time that seem to suggest this. Alma chapter 40, verse 8. Now, whether there is more than one time appointed for men to rise, mattereth not, for all do not die at once. And this mattereth not, all is as one day with God, and time only is measured unto men. Doctrine and Covenants 84, verse 100. In speaking of future conditions during the millennium and exaltation, the Lord hath redeemed his people, and Satan is bound, and time is no longer. And then right here in section 130, verse 7, 
but they reside in the presence of God on a globe like a sea of glass and fire, where all things for their glory are manifest, past, present, and future, and are continually before the Lord. So I like the way C.S. Lewis explains this kind of thing. He compared it to reading a book. If you're the person holding and reading the book, all is before you at once. The past, present, and future of the characters is right there in front of you, and you can flip back and forth between them. If you've read the book before, you know the whole story. Well, in this case, God is holding the book of mortality. And it's not a perfect illustration, but but can maybe help us to understand God's omniscience a little bit better. He knows all because it's all right there in front of him. And he's read the whole story. If there's a relevant, personal application of this principle, maybe it's this. God knows the past, present, and future. It's all before him. He has the ultimate eternal perspective. So when he or his prophets give counsel and commandments, trust them. Next ride, crystal clear. These verses teach us more about what heaven will be like. Look for what it teaches you about heaven. It says in verse 9, This earth, in its sanctified and immortal state, will be made like unto crystal, and will be a urim and thummim to the inhabitants who dwell thereon, whereby all things pertaining to inferior kingdom, or all kingdoms of a lower order, will be manifest to those who dwell on it, and this earth will be Christ's. So here we learn that this earth would become the celestial kingdom. And I have heard some interpret this verse in conjunction with prophecies in Scripture that speak of mountains being made low and and valleys filled, that heaven is going to be just like a shining crystal ball, a giant glass Kansas. That's the literal interpretation. But I really don't think that's what it means. I don't think that this is a description of, of, of the actual physical appearance of heaven. Heaven's going to be beautiful, filled with color and life and variety, just like this earth. Only it's going to be coupled with eternal glory. So I do prefer the figurative interpretation of that prophecy. Uh, verse 8 tells us that the place where God resides is a great Urim and Thummim. And the Urim and Thummim was a physical object that helped the possessor of it know and understand things that could not be known by the mortal mind alone. Joseph used a Urim and Thummim at times to translate the gold plates. King Benjamin used the Urim and Thummim. Aaron carried a Urim and Thummim in the clothing that the high priest would wear. And in Hebrew, Urim and Thummim means lights and perfections. Urim and Thummim brings light or knowledge that helps to perfect us. When this earth is celestialized, it will become like unto crystal and will be a Urim and Thummim to the inhabitants who dwell upon it. It will be like unto crystal, not that it will become crystal, just like unto it. And what effect is that going to have on us? All things pertaining to an inferior kingdom will be made manifest to those that dwell on it. I just think that means that we are going to understand it. 
all things are going to be made manifest to us. All things will become crystal clear. Our minds will be enlightened. We'll have a perfect understanding of things as they really are. All truth will be before us. Have you ever wanted to know how the creation of the earth really took place? That's going to become crystal clear to us. Is there some aspect of the plan of salvation that you don't quite understand yet or nobody's ever been able to answer your questions about? Well, it's going to be clear. Uh, your mind will be enlightened. All the great mysteries and questions that mankind has entertained for ages will come into perfect focus for us. In fact, more personally speaking, when you go to heaven, you get a special gift. A white stone. Our own personal Urim and Thummim, whereby we may know and understand things. Again, I'm not sure if this is literal or figurative, but it doesn't really matter because the net effect is going to be the same. What the great gift that we receive with eternal glory is going to be a larger measure of understanding and light and perfection. Now, you might notice that I'm skipping verses 12 through 13. The reason why is because this is Joseph Smith's prophecy on the Civil War and the subsequent bloodshed that will increase until the time of the second coming. And we discussed this prophecy in depth back in section 87. So we're not going to go into it here. Just remember that this is a great example of Joseph's prophetic calling. This prophecy is going to be fulfilled 20 years later. That's some real foresight. It's almost like he was a prophet or something. All right, verses 14 through 17, 1890. And I love this little part here. It kind of shows that God has a bit of a sense of humor. Joseph asks the question that a lot of people ask. When is the second coming going to happen? And now we get all excited because if anybody's going to get an answer to that question, it's going to be Joseph Smith. And what's the Lord's answer? Joseph, my son, if thou livest until thou art 85 years old, thou shalt see the face of the Son of Man. Therefore, let this suffice, and trouble me no more about the matter. I was left thus without being able to decide whether this coming referred to the beginning of the millennium, or to some previous appearing, or whether I should die and thus see his face. I believe the coming of the Son of Man will not be any sooner than that time. So, so Joseph, okay, you want me to answer this question? All right. If you live to be 85, you'll see my face. Now stop bugging me about it. Let this suffice. And I can just imagine Joseph getting super excited initially and doing the math in his head and coming up with 1890 and saying, ah, that's when it's going to happen. But then he stops and he says, oh, oh, wait a second, wait a second. What does this mean? I'll see your face if I live to be 85. And if I live to be 85, that's not a guarantee. And does this mean the millennium or just a personal appearance to me? Or I'm going to die at age 85 and return to God? Uh, what do you mean, Lord? And the Lord just smiles and shrugs his shoulders and says, uh, who knows? We'll see, won't we? Now no, stop bugging me about this. Don't you remember what I revealed to you back in section 49? I, the Lord God, have spoken it, but the hour and the day no man knoweth, neither the angels in heaven, 
nor shall they know until he comes. You wrote those very words yourself. So no, Joseph, I'm not going to give you the timestamp. Perhaps that's a good message for us. If Joseph couldn't get a straight answer to that one, then none of us will. God doesn't intend us to know the exact day. There'll be plenty of signs to help us to know when it's getting close, but he's not going to let us know the exact day. And we'll talk about that in more depth next week in section 133. All right, next ride, the strainer, verses 18 through 19. And you may be familiar with the old proverb, you can't take it with you. And that's true to a certain extent. All the things that we accumulate in this life will mean nothing once we die. We can't take our money, our homes, our toys, our worldly things or accomplishments. However, there is actually something that we can take with us into the next life. What is it, according to verse 18 and 19? Whatever principle of intelligence we attain unto in this life, it will rise with us in the resurrection. And if a person gains more knowledge and intelligence in this life through his diligence and obedience than another, he will have so much the advantage in the world to come. So what can we take with us? Our knowledge and intelligence. That stays. Sometimes to illustrate this, I like to do a little object lesson. I have a bowl at the front with a strainer sitting down inside it. The bowl represents our life. And as we go throughout our lives, we accumulate things. We may gather money and even become very wealthy. And I take a handful of coins and drop it down inside the bowl. Cars. Drop a toy car or two down into the bowl. Maybe I get a really nice home. Then I'll drop a little house made out of Legos down into it. Maybe I get to the point where I can afford a boat. You could drop a toy boat down inside. But, you say, these are all material things. There's something else I gather in life that isn't quite so solid. And that's where I have a little jar full of water that's labeled knowledge and intelligence. And as we go throughout our lives, we gather this too. We gather it through our formal schooling. We gather it through our life experiences. We gather it in our scripture study and listening to the prophets. We gather knowledge and intelligence through obedience and sacrifice. And as you're talking about this, you pour the water into the bowl. But then one day, we're going to die. And at this point, you lift the strainer out of the bowl. All the solid material, the earthly things, are going to come with it. But what remains behind? Knowledge and intelligence. That we do get to take with us. So what's the value in recognizing that? That can help us to set our priorities. We should make the gathering of knowledge and intelligence a major priority in our lives rather than material wealth. That can be secular, spiritual, and experiential knowledge. Skills and talents, too. And then we get this little gem of knowledge here. What are the two best ways to gain knowledge and intelligence? Diligence and obedience. Hard work and acting on God's counsel. 
That's how we get. Those are the keys. And if we gain more knowledge and intelligence through our diligence and obedience, we will have that advantage in the next life. We don't stop learning once we're exalted. It's not as if we all of a sudden just understand and know everything like God. There's so much that this universe can teach us. Not only is it infinite in space, but infinite in intelligent potential. Learning's an eternal part of God's plan. So if we gain more here, we're going to have that advantage there. Subtext then is learn all you can. Don't fritter away your time in in mere passive entertainment. Get out there. Learn things. Skills, intelligence, faith. Our worldly or material investments are going to be obsolete as soon as our mortal bodies flatline. But our knowledge, that's an investment that can truly benefit us forever. Verses 20 through 21, law and order. What is the secret to blessings, to receiving good things? Simple answer. There is a law irrevocably decreed in heaven before the foundations of this world upon which all blessings are predicated. And when we obtain any blessing from God, it is by obedience to that law upon which it is predicated. The big principle here, obedience brings blessings. I don't know how much simpler I can boil that down. This is one of the most important skills or pieces of knowledge that we can acquire in this life. You may have heard me say this before, but if there was one word that I could change in the gospel, it would be the word commandment. Because I don't believe it captures the true spirit of commandments. What part of the word stands out? Command. I want you to do this because I say so. Because I'm in charge. And Satan loves to play off that aspect. He loves to invent power struggles between God's children and those placed in authority over them. To Satan, it's always a power thing. Rebellion is the way that you exert your independence. Ah, see, they're just trying to control you. They've got these ulterior motives. But that's not it at all. Do you know what I would call commandments? I would call them divine guidancements, or happy-ments, or How to live a blessed and meaningful life so that Satan doesn't deceive you and make your life miserable. Mens. That's the spirit of a commandment. God loves us. His work and glory is our immortality and eternal life. He wants to bless us. But there is a law irrevocably decreed in heaven. Blessings come from obedience. All right, verses 22 through 23, Trinity truths. A good question that you can ask with this particular set of verses is why this matters. If you're a member of the church, I'm sure you've heard this doctrine before. The father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's, the son also. But the Holy Ghost has not a body of flesh and bones, but is a personage of spirit. So the Godhead is made up of three separate individual beings, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Now, how important is that? What difference does that make? 
other than that, this is a huge divergence from the rest of the Christian world. We can see from early Christian history that the doctrine of the Godhead was one of the very first things that Satan attacked. But why? What difference does it make between believing in God, Jesus, and the Holy Ghost as three separate beings and believing in them as one overarching, incomprehensible power or force, like the rest of the Christian world believes? My thought? I believe the doctrine of the Trinity depersonalizes the members of the Godhead. If God and Jesus and the Holy Ghost are just this otherworldly, incomprehensible power, then it's going to be much harder for me to connect with that. It distances God and the Savior from us. Joseph Smith once said, if men do not comprehend the character of God, they do not comprehend themselves. Having a knowledge of God, we begin to know how to approach him and how to ask so as to receive an answer. When we understand the character of God and know how to come to him, he begins to unfold the heavens to us and to tell us all about it. When we are ready to come to him, he is ready to come to us. Is it any wonder that Satan would so vehemently attack that one particular doctrine? He does not want us to get to know God. Better to portray him as mystical, incomprehensible, and distant, rather than tangible, real, and personal. Another gem from these verses deals with the Holy Ghost. We learn here that the Holy Ghost may descend upon a man and not tarry with him. What does that mean? A little analogy of my own helps me to better grasp that principle. I imagine myself sitting in a large theater, one of those fancy ones with red plush seats and gold trim on everything. And the stage represents the stage of my mind and my life. All the things I watch, the music I listen to, the thoughts I entertain, the environments I put myself in, all those things parade across the stage. When I receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, I receive a companion. He comes and sits himself down right next to me. And there he helps me. Perhaps I hear a podcast where somebody's expressing their theories and opinions about certain social issues. And the Holy Ghost leans over and whispers into my ear, This is not the truth. You shouldn't believe what you're hearing. However, on other occasions, I may be listening to someone speak or teaching, and the Holy Ghost leans over and whispers, Listen to this person closely. They are telling you the truth. And that happens a lot to me during general conference. Or I may be in a certain environment or with a group of people, and he leans over and says, This is not a good place for you. You should get us out of here. It's time to leave. Or there may be something particularly challenging or discouraging happening in my life on the stage. And so he reaches over and puts his arm around me and assures that all will be okay. Comforts me. But then maybe there's times in my life, hopefully few and far between, where I get a little confrontational with the Holy Ghost. I'm watching a movie, listening to some music, browsing the internet, and he leans over and whispers, this is inappropriate. You should turn that off. And maybe I turn to him and I say, oh, I think I can handle it. It's not that big a deal. It's just this or that. Uh, 
I think I'll just continue watching if you don't mind. And he says, okay, you're free to choose. I won't force you to do anything. But I don't watch these kinds of movies. I don't listen to that kind of music. I don't entertain those kinds of thoughts. I'll consider returning when these kinds of things are no longer on the stage. And he stands, turns, and politely excuses himself from the theater, leaving me alone in the seats. Now, we may receive the Holy Ghost, the gift of the Holy Ghost, but he may not always tarry with us. I'm afraid that the more often we ignore the counsel of the Spirit, the less often he's going to be able to be with us. Yes, we may have had somebody place their hands on our head and confer upon us the gift of the Holy Ghost, but that doesn't guarantee his constant companionship. Personally, considering the world that we live in and the confusing messages that surround us every day, I just don't think we can afford to be without that guidance for very long. Moving into section 131, verses 5 through 6. And I'm going to skip over the first four verses and include those in our discussion of section 132, since thematically they're related. But as far as verses 5 through 6 are concerned, I like to avoid going too deeply into their meaning and implications. I'm afraid I've often heard a lot of speculation on the topic of the more sure word of prophecy or having your calling and election made sure. Suffice it to say that it's possible for an individual to receive a confirmation from the Lord himself that they will be saved in the celestial kingdom. That basically, they've proved themselves. They've passed the test. They've demonstrated through their actions, through their commitment, through their faith, that they're just not ever going to abandon God's straight and narrow path. So they're assured of their salvation. Now, how and when and where and under what circumstances that takes place, I have no comment on. But one thing's for sure, it's impossible to be saved in ignorance. I know of people who wonder and worry if they're going to make it. They doubt their worthiness to enter the celestial kingdom. They fear they're just not good enough and they're going to fall short of the glory of God. When I hear somebody make those kind of comments, I just ask them if they're worthily holding a current temple recommend. If they say yes, then I tell them to stop worrying so much. If they're worthy to be in the celestial room of the temple, then that would suggest that they're worthy to be in the celestial kingdom. What's the last question on the temple recommend interview? Do you consider yourself worthy to receive a temple recommend? And I believe that question's often more asked for the benefit of the interviewee than the interviewer. It's like, if you answered all those other questions honestly, you can answer that last one with confidence. You've got a testimony of certain things. You sustain your church leaders. You strive to live the commandments and teachings of the gospel. There's nothing of a serious nature in your life from which you need to repent. Therefore, you know that you're worthy. And it's important for you to consider yourself worthy. We don't want you going to the temple ignorant of your worthiness. And if a person doesn't feel that, then they should talk about it and receive counsel from their priesthood leader until they do. Nobody can be saved in ignorance. Perhaps eternal salvation is a similar kind of situation. 
we need to know how and why we're being saved. Verses 7 through 8, spiritual substance. Here's an interesting question. What is spirit made of? Is spirit something different than matter? Does it have substance? Or does it just exist in a different dimension? Is it physical or metaphysical? These verses answer that question. There is no such thing as immaterial matter. All spirit is matter. But it is more fine or pure and can only be discerned by purer eyes. We cannot see it. But when our bodies are purified, we shall see that it is all matter. So there you have it. Spirit is matter. It is a physical, material substance. It's just that it's pure, more refined, and it's not detectable to the mortal eyes. At some point in the future, this is going to become apparent, and we're going to see that all is matter. Now, I'm not really sure what spiritual significance or relevance that this has to the way we live our lives, but it is interesting. And that concludes our trip to the doctrinal amusement park. And wasn't that fun? Did you learn something new? Maybe an overall principle here to point out is that God has a lot to teach us. There's so much that we can learn and know and understand in the gospel. These are like some really, really fun extras. The more we study and accept and apply what we learn, the more he can and will teach us. For unto him that receiveth, I will give more. And from them that shall say, we have enough, from them shall be taken away even that which they have. Well, on to section 132. And I like to start a discussion about section 132 with the following decisions activity. I put up a number of different decisions that people have to make in life. And I invite them to raise their hand and even allow some students to explain why they choose that particular thing. So here we go. White or wheat? And that's referring to bread. But which do you prefer and why? Paper or plastic? Stick or automatic? Rent or own? Now these may be more trivial decisions that we make in life. But what are some of the most important decisions that we're going to make? Where we live, what hobbies or or skills we engage with, our education, our politics, our careers. Spencer W. Kimball suggested the following. The greatest single factor affecting what you are going to be tomorrow, your activity, your attitudes, your eventual destiny, is the one decision you make that moonlit night when you ask that individual to be your companion for life. That's the most important decision of your entire life. It isn't where you're going to go to school or what lessons you're going to study or what your major is or how you are going to make your living. These, though important, are incidental and nothing compared with the important decision that you make when you ask someone to be your companion for eternity. Keep in mind that he's speaking to a group of young men. But more generally speaking, one of the most important decisions you will ever make is who you will marry. And I would add to that idea that it's not just who we marry, but under what circumstances. 
We want to be sure to marry the right kind of person at the right time in the right place. Sections 131 through 132 are going to help guide us in that major decision. So our first question is why it's so important to be married to the right person in the right place. Section 131 verses 1 through 4 helps to answer that question. In the celestial glory, there are three heavens or degrees. And in order to obtain the highest, a man must enter into this order of the priesthood, meaning the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. And if he does not, he cannot obtain it. He may enter into the other, but that is the end of his kingdom. He cannot have an increase. So why is it important? We cannot obtain the highest degree of exaltation without it. We learned that that there are three different degrees within the celestial kingdom, varying states of exaltation. And if we wish to obtain the highest, if we wish to become just like our heavenly parents, then we've got to enter into the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. Not just any marriage, but the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. We cannot be exalted alone. Exaltation is a joint effort. Marriage is the foundational unit of eternity. Husband and wife become one flesh and progress into the eternities together. As individuals, we are only half of an eternal unit. Now, that's not derogatory or something that a single person need feel like they're less than somebody else because they're not yet married. And there may be many who, through no fault of their own, never marry, at least not in this life. But the Lord guarantees that all who wish to enter into the new and everlasting covenant will have that opportunity, whether in this life or the next. That blessing will come to all who desire it. So the principles we discussed today apply to all, young or old, single or married. God promises all righteous individuals that if they remain on his path, no blessing or promise will be denied them. There's another reason for eternal marriage that we find in these verses. Those who do not enter into that highest degree of celestial glory cannot have an increase. Increase in this sense means posterity, children. Those that obtain the highest degree can continue to have children in the next life and are the only individuals that can. We know that family and lineage and posterity and heritage are really important ideas in the gospel and the plan of salvation. The power and blessings of those kinds of relationships husband and wife, parent and child, can only continue, can only increase in the highest degree of the celestial glory. Moving on to section 132. 132 is most often associated with the practice of plural marriage. And we will discuss that in this lesson. But that's not all it's about. Plural marriage is just a subset of the more all-encompassing subject of celestial or eternal marriage. After Joseph's initial question about plural marriage in the first couple of verses, it's almost as if God says, okay, hang on, Joseph, before we talk about plural marriage, let's make sure we understand eternal marriage first. 
And that's the way that I'd like to approach this too. Let's see what God has to say about celestial or eternal marriage first. And the first half of section 132 is going to describe three different kinds of marriage. Let's take a close look at each. And to introduce them, God wants us to understand a specific principle, which he talks about in depth from verses 7 to 14. And the major gist of these verses can basically be summed up by verse 7, which says, And verily I say unto you that the conditions of this law are these, all covenants, contracts, bonds, obligations, oaths, vows, performances, connections, associations, or expectations that are not made and entered into and sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise of him who is anointed, both as well for time and for all eternity, and that too most holy by revelation and commandment through the medium of mine anointed, whom I have appointed on the earth to hold this power, we'll skip the parentheses, are of no efficacy, virtue, or force in and after the resurrection from the dead, for all contracts that are not made unto this end have an end when men are dead. So, simply put, for something to be eternal in nature, for it to be valid, not just here on earth, but in heaven too, it's got to be done in God's way and by his authority. So for this part of the lesson, I like to make three columns on the board and label each at the top with marriage one, two, and three, and then the verses that you'll find those marriages described. I then number off my students as ones, twos, and threes and invite them to study their assigned type of marriage. And they should look for the answer to the three following questions. Where does this marriage take place? By what authority is it done? And what happens to that marriage in the next life? Let's go through these together. Marriage number one in verses 15 through 17. Where does this marriage take place? This marriage takes place in the world, in a terrestrial setting. By what authority is it done? And the authority by which it is done is not by God or by his word. So so this is not by God. The man is only covenanting with his wife for as long as he is in the world with her. And what happens to that marriage in the next life? When they, that husband and wife, are out of the world, or when they die, their marriage will be of no force. That marriage ends at death. And this idea is even reflected in the wording of most civil marriage ceremonies. It's, till death do you part, or for as long as you both shall live. It's not eternal, but temporal. What kind of marriage are we talking about here? This is a civil or earthly marriage. Therefore, they remain separately and singly without exaltation in their saved condition. So if you have an earthly marriage, you can still be saved, of course, in a kingdom of glory. But that bond or contract or covenant between spouses is of no force in the next life. And according to what we just read in section 131, they cannot be exalted because we are only exalted as husband and wife. So let's take a look at marriage number two, verse 18. Where does this marriage take place? Well, it says that this man is marrying a wife with a covenant for 
time and for all eternity. And where is that kind of a covenant made? Where do we use that wording? In the temple. So this is a temple marriage. But is it a celestial marriage? By what authority does it take place? Well, if it's a temple marriage, then we can safely assume that it's been done by someone who has authority, by someone who has been anointed and appointed unto that power. But this is the marriage that's a little harder to understand. What happens to it after they die? It says that it's not valid when they are out of the world. This is not an eternal marriage. And that might be confusing to some of your students, especially the youth. How can a temple marriage not be valid in the next life? The answer is right there in the verse. There's a problem with this particular temple marriage. That marriage isn't sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. Ah, What does that mean? Let me ask you, does just getting married in the temple guarantee that your marriage will be eternal? Because somebody said the words and you were physically in a sealing room. Now, no matter what happens between you and your spouse, whatever you do, you're together for eternity? No, it's not a guarantee. Any more than just going through the act of being baptized guarantees you salvation regardless of what you do afterwards. For a marriage to be eternal, it's got to be sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. What's the Holy Spirit of promise? Elder Bednar said the following, The Holy Spirit of promise is the ratifying power of the Holy Ghost. When sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, an ordinance, vow, or covenant is binding on earth and in heaven. Receiving this stamp of approval from the Holy Ghost is the result of faithfulness, integrity, and steadfastness in honoring gospel covenants in the process of time. However, this sealing can be forfeited through unrighteousness and transgression. And this is the way I like to explain it. A marriage is like a triangle. You have husband on one corner, wife on another, and then God at the top. The bonds between each must be strong. The marriage must be by God and his word. Now, a man and a wife can both have good, strong bonds with God, but perhaps not with each other. Without that connection being strong, then the triangle of the marriage can fall apart. This is not an eternal marriage. The Holy Spirit of promise does not ratify or place its seal of approval on that marriage unless all three bonds are strong. Perhaps at some point it might have been strong, at the beginning maybe. But if a spouse proves unfaithful, If there's abuse or neglect or unrighteous dominion, if a couple doesn't serve and sacrifice for each other and they don't work at their marriage, then the Holy Spirit of promise may withdraw from that marriage. And now, it's no longer something of an eternal nature. Now, I believe it can return through repentance and recommitment, but until then, the triangle is incomplete. This is what I would call a temple marriage. In the sense that, yes, it did happen in the temple. But that's not enough. It's got to be sealed. When I was married, my father gave me an interesting wedding gift. An empty mason jar. And if you've ever canned fruit, you know how these work. Do you seal an empty jar? No. 
you have to put the fruit in first, and then you seal it. At the beginning of a marriage, there isn't really anything to seal yet. You're just being given the jar. So now what do you do? You spend your life filling that jar with fruit. The fruits of your marriage. You fill it with your love, your sacrifice, your compromises, your service, your time, your shared experiences, both happy and sad. And if you both remain faithful and honor your covenants, then God and the Holy Spirit of promise will come along and seal those fruits to us for eternity. And then in the next life, you can continue to enjoy all those same fruits together as husband and wife. You will enjoy eternal increase. Fruits will be preserved. So let's look at marriage number three in verses 19 through 20. Where does this marriage take place? It is by his word and law and by the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. So this would also be a marriage that has taken place in the temple. By what authority does it take place? This is a marriage that's been performed by someone anointed and appointed unto that power. And this time, it is also sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. Therefore, what happens when they die? There's a whole list of things here. They come forth in the first resurrection. They inherit thrones, kingdoms, principalities, and powers, dominions, heights, and depths. The marriage will be of full force when they are out of this world. They receive exaltation and glory in all things. They shall have a continuation of the seeds forever and ever. This harkens back to the idea of eternal increase. Their seed or posterity can continue into the eternities. They shall be as gods. And notice it's the words they in all of these instances. We can only be exalted together. They shall be from everlasting to everlasting because they continue. All things are subject unto them. They shall be gods and have all power. This is basically a description of exaltation. And I don't want to speculate on the particulars. I don't really know what all of this entails. And I'm not really sure what the scriptures mean by and the angels are subject unto them. I'm also not exactly sure what godhood really looks like or all that that means. I know it's God's with a little g, not a capital one, and that we don't take God's place. He's always going to be our father and our God, and he will always be above us. But exaltation sure sounds wonderful, doesn't it? It'll be glorious. And our marriage relationship can be of full force for eternity and worth all we may have experienced, suffered, or sacrificed on this earth. That I'm sure of. So the truth, if I marry in the temple and live in such a way that my marriage is sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, then my marriage will be eternal. And my spouse and I will have eternal increase. Like in the scriptures, what can you do now to obtain this great blessing? The answer to that question is going to vary greatly depending on your situation. But all of us can do something. For the youth, that might mean preparing yourself now for that kind of marriage. To keep yourself temple-worthy and develop a character and a faith that will turn you into the kind of spouse that can 
and will live faithfully and lovingly for eternity. The youth can also cultivate a desire and plan to be married in the temple. For the young single adult, that may mean actively seeking to find a worthy partner so as to create a celestial marriage and family and not deliberately avoiding or delaying that commitment for any kind of worldly concern or anxiety. For those that would love to be married but have not yet had that blessing or opportunity come, continue faithful. There's much more to this mortal experience than marriage. Being committed to Christ and righteousness matter more. Remember that God assures eternal marriage and increase to all righteous individuals, regardless of whether they marry in this life or not. So just stay righteous. And for the married, live in such a way that your marriage can be sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. Fill the jar. Stay faithful and true and work hard to create a celestial marriage that is worth having for eternity. And I'd like to conclude this portion of the lesson by saying that I'm so grateful for my wife and for the doctrine of celestial marriage. What a beautiful and hopeful and glorious doctrine that a cherished relationship can be eternal in nature. The greatest and most impactful day of my life and really my existence was June 13th, 2002. And that was the day I knelt at an altar in the Salt Lake Temple and made a covenant to Alicia Hilton and she to me. The effect of that day, I hope and pray and anticipate, will reverberate throughout eternity. I believe in celestial marriage. And I'm so grateful for the great plan of happiness that makes that eternal relationship possible. Now, to the final portion of section 132. A tough one, really. This is a topic that is controversial, difficult to understand, and has resulted in much ridicule and opposition to the church ever since its inception. And that topic is the fourth kind of marriage explained in section 132. Plural marriage, or polygamy. Now, I want you to know right from the get-go that my object here is not to have you leave feeling perfectly fine about polygamy. That's something that we all come to terms with on our own. Personally, I'm very glad that we don't currently practice it. I mean, one wife is enough, right? I once heard somebody say that multiple wives means multiple mothers-in-law. So keep that in mind. By the way, I have an amazing mother-in-law. But in all seriousness... It's a principle that many members have struggled with through the entire history of the church. For one, it clashes very deeply with our modern Western cultural values. Two, you can imagine the difficulties for both the men and the women involved to live in that way. And three, the practices and the social reclusion of the modern fundamentalist uh, polygamist movement doesn't help to give the practice a very good name. So no wonder we struggle with the idea. What I hope to accomplish here is to have you leave with a better understanding of it. The way I like to approach this topic is with a true-false activity. 
I hand it out at the beginning, give them some time to fill it out, and then we go through the scriptures to help answer the questions. So here we go. Number one, the church has hidden information about Joseph Smith's polygamy for years and only recently has told the general membership about it. That is false. And I've heard people make that claim before. But it's it's right here in the Doctrine and Covenants and has been for over a century, officially since 1876. It is true that in Nauvoo at the time, it was not publicly taught or introduced to the general membership. Plural marriage was something that was introduced slowly and methodically. So maybe somebody in 1843 Nauvoo could make that claim, but not us. It's always been there in plain sight for all the world to see in Doctrine and Covenants 132. We can't blame the church for our own ignorance of things. We've got to take responsibility for our own study of the scriptures and church history. Now, maybe it hasn't been emphasized as much, and much more research and understanding has been developed in recent years. But nothing's ever been hid from us. Two, the practice of plural marriage was first introduced to Joseph Smith and had never been sanctioned by God before that time. False. There are many examples in the Bible of people practicing God-sanctioned plural marriage. Section 132, verse 1, lists some of those individuals. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Solomon. And these men were, in many cases, prophets and kings, men of God. Some of the biggest names in the Old Testament. I don't think you can believe in the Bible and at the same time completely reject the idea of plural marriage. You at least have to accept that God can allow it in some instances. In a letter, Martin Luther once said that he could not forbid a person to marry several wives, for it does not contradict Scripture. So it's always nice to know when something has a biblical precedent. We do have a biblical leg to stand on here. Number three, Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, and other early church members were eager to enter the practice of polygamy once it was introduced to them. And that is patently false. It was just the opposite. They were bewildered by it, terrified by it, even repulsed by it. This clashed very strongly with their own Victorian ideals of chastity and propriety. And if you wish, you could show your students some of the following statements that shows that many were resistant to the practice. One of the common accusations that I've heard made is that early male church leaders were lustful men who wanted to have sexual relations with multiple women, and, and polygamy was a means to accomplish this. And that accusation really shouldn't surprise us. In our hypersexualized modern media culture, it makes sense that they're, they're going to seize on that and they're going to sensationalize that topic. But nothing could be further from the truth. They didn't want to live this law. It's even reflected in Joseph's language when he initially asks God about it. 
It says in verse 1 that Joseph prayed and asked how God justified Old Testament prophets, such as Abraham and Isaac and others in having multiple wives. He's like, how is this justified, God? This doesn't sound right. These men in the Bible are held up as very righteous men, as prophets. How were they justified in doing this thing? Joseph was not eager to implement the practice. And I think the only reason he's even asking about it is because he just wants to understand the scriptures. He was always asking questions about the scriptures. I don't think he anticipated the answer that he was going to get. So number four, we should feel guilty if the idea of plural marriage bothers us. This is an indication of a lack of faith. And that's false as well. Like we just said, even Joseph Smith himself and others struggled with the idea of it. So there should be no guilt involved with wrestling with it. To find something difficult or troubling is not a lack of faith. Number five, plural marriage is only acceptable when God commands it. And that's true. Look at 34 through 35. God commanded Abraham and Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham to wife. And why did she do it? Because this was the law. And from Hagar sprang many people. This, therefore, was fulfilling, among other things, the promises. Was Abraham, therefore, under condemnation? Verily I say unto you, Nay, for I, the Lord, commanded it. The fact of the matter is that plural marriage is the exception and not the rule. Monogamy is God's typical plan for his children. You can see that principle taught in a number of places in Scripture. For example, 1 Timothy 3.2. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. And then we go to Jacob 2, verses 27 through 28 in the Book of Mormon. Wherefore, my brethren, hear me and hearken to the word of the Lord. For there shall not any man among you have, save it be one wife, and concubines he shall have none. For I, the Lord God, delight in the chastity of women, and whoredoms are an abomination before me, thus saith the Lord of hosts. And even in the Doctrine and Covenants itself, Latter-day Scripture, Doctrine and Covenants 49, verse 16, Wherefore it is lawful that he should have one wife and they twain shall be one flesh, and all this that the earth might answer the end of its creation. The Apostle James E. Talmadge once said the following, Plurality of wives was an incident, never an essential. And then Bruce R. McConkie, Plural marriage is not essential to salvation or exaltation. Therefore, we need not suppose that plural marriage is an eternal law that all will be asked to live in the eternities. There's no scriptural foundation for that assumption. The fact of the matter is that we follow God's commands. When he commands monogamy, that's the law we live. And when he makes an exception and commands plural marriage, then that's what we follow. It's all upon the Lord's commandments. Number six, Emma struggled greatly to accept the practice of plural marriage. And that's true. And like we've said from the beginning, almost everyone struggles with the idea of plural marriage. It's clear from the history that Emma really had a tough time 
with the law of polygamy. But can we really blame her? I mean, we struggle too. This represented a major strain on Joseph and Emma's marriage, as you can imagine. And other people and historians have dealt with this topic much better and deeper than I can. So I'll leave you to go to them for some more detail. But probably the best source for an official church-approved treatment of this topic would be the gospel topic essay entitled Plural Marriage in Kirtland and Nauvoo. And I'll provide a link to that essay in the video description below. And I encourage you to look there first. And I also encourage you to read another essay entitled Plural Marriage and Families in Early Utah. And you'll understand these topics so much better by reading those than for me to try and cover all the particulars here. But back to section 132, there's a word in this section in reference to Emma that's really difficult to understand and even kind of painful to consider. There are a few places where Emma is commanded to accept the practice of plural marriage or she would be destroyed. Verse 54 is an example of that. I'm not going to pretend that I get the reason why the Lord chose to use that word or what he exactly meant. I guess I'll just say the following, though. Words to man don't always have the same connotation to God. And I can think of a number of, of examples of this. Martin Harris was described as a wicked man earlier in the Doctrine and Covenants. And I believe that the way that the Lord's using that term is very different than the way that we use it. We learn from Doctrine and Covenants 19 that eternal punishment and eternal damnation and endless torment don't mean what mankind has generally thought them to mean. We know that there is not really a, a hell of fire and brimstone and endless torture. The term damnation in the scriptures really just means the stopping of progress. The way that God uses some of these words really softens them. Now, I'm thinking and hoping that that's the same case with the word destroyed here. I imagine it just means that there would be lost blessings for disobedience. Number seven, when practicing God-sanctioned plural marriage, the man can decide on his own whether or not he will marry another wife. And this is false. Look at verse 61. And again, as pertaining to the law of the priesthood, if any man espouse a virgin and desire to espouse another, and the first give her consent, and if he espouse the second, and they are virgins, and have vowed to no other man, then is he justified. So the wife was just as much a part of the process as the man. She had to give her consent. Number eight, the Lord commands plural marriage when there are more women than men in his church. Plural marriage also causes a population boom from which to build a larger church foundation. So this question is dealing more with you know, the whys of, uh, of plural marriage. Why would God? command his children to do it at times. And, and there's been a lot of theories presented as to the reasons why. And really, the best answer to that question is they lived it because the Lord commanded. But let's see if this can teach us a little bit more on the topic. The answer to number eight is false. In fact, research has shown that there were not significantly more women than men in Nauvoo at that time, or even in early Utah. 
And the explanation that plural marriage causes a population boom is also not true. Whether a group of women are married to separate men or they're all married to the same man, it doesn't increase the number of children that they can or are likely to have. So what is the reason for plural marriage? Why does the Lord sometimes command or allow it? I don't claim to know all of the reasons, but the best scriptural explanation I know of is in the Book of Mormon, in Jacob chapter 2, verse 30, which says, For if I will, saith the Lord of hosts, raise up seed unto me, I will command my people to live polygamy. Otherwise, they shall hearken unto these things, monogamy, which is what Jacob is teaching at that moment. The key phrase is, raise up seed unto me. Now, at first glance, that may sound like he's saying that it will produce more children. But we've already examined how that's not true. Look more closely at the phrase, though. It's not just raise up seed, but seed unto me. One of the clear, positive results and blessings of polygamy in the early church was that more children were able to be raised by the most faithful men and women. Not just anybody could live that law. It was highly regulated because they didn't want it practiced for any but the purest of intents. Only the most worthy men and women were even allowed to enter into it. Your character had to be vouched for by priesthood leadership to even allow a plural marriage to take place. Look at it this way. Under monogamy, how many children could have had the benefit and blessing of being raised by a Brigham Young, a John Taylor, a Wilford Woodruff? Six to ten? Maybe a few more? How many under polygamy? Many children could be raised by these great fathers in these faithful households. And the wives... Oh my gosh, what kind of women do you think these mothers must have been to be willing for their religion, for their faith, to live that way? I can't think of many women who are wild about the idea of sharing their husband. This must have been very difficult for them. But they did it because of their great faith in God and the restored gospel. What incredible women of faith They must have been in examples they were to their children. There's no doubt that polygamy created a very strong and solid basis of dedicated and faithful members of the restored church. There's a paragraph in the Gospel Topics essay, uh, the one uh, Plural Marriage and Families in Early Utah, that sums this point up nicely. For many who practiced it, plural marriage was a significant sacrifice. Despite the hardships some experienced, the faithfulness of those who practiced plural marriage continues to benefit the church in innumerable ways. Through the lineage of these 19th century saints have come many Latter-day Saints who have been faithful to their gospel covenants as righteous mothers and fathers, loyal disciples of Jesus Christ, and devoted church members, leaders, and missionaries. Although members of the contemporary church are forbidden to practice plural marriage, Modern Latter-day Saints honor and respect these pioneers who gave so much for their faith, families, and community. 
Personally speaking, I am a descendant of pioneers who lived plural marriage. I know from their journals that living plural marriage was difficult. But they lived it because they had faith in God and the restored gospel and the Book of Mormon. Their courage and dedication and their commitment to obedience has been passed down through each succeeding generation. They certainly raised up seed unto God. And I'm honored to say that I am a part of that seed. So how could I abandon my faith in the restored gospel over this issue? What would my ancestors say? They actually lived it and stayed true. I don't even have to live it. I just hear about it. How could I reject all that I know to be true and all the blessings of the church because of this one thing that is hard to accept and understand? Well, I know that we only really scratched the surface on this, and we will come back to the topic again in a few weeks when we discuss official declaration number one. Maybe the most relevant principle that can come from this discussion would be this. Be willing to do things that are hard for the gospel's sake. Be willing to be persecuted for your beliefs. Be willing to do whatever the Lord asks of you, no matter how difficult. The early polygamists of the church have shown us a wonderful example of living the gospel even when it meant persecution, punishment, disenfranchisement, and even prison. Would that we all would have the faith and loyalty to do the same with the smaller things that the Lord has asked us to do. Well, there you have it, folks. I know that this was a bit of a longer week than usual. There's just so many different topics and ideas and important things to look at here. So I hope you're okay with that. If you're interested in any of the resources that I, I produce to, to help teachers, go to teachingwithpower.com and you're going to find links to those resources. If you found this lesson helpful in any way, please share it with somebody that you feel it could help. Um, if you haven't subscribed to the channel, do that. Hit the like button, uh, make a comment. All of those things help. Thank you so much for watching. And as always, get out there and teach with power.